0: As we look at God's Word today, we're finishing up our series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The last six weeks, we've been taking a church at a time, a letter that Christ himself sent to each church. Living back over the weeks, Ephesus was a church that had correct theology, but it lost its love. So you had that loveless orthodoxy. Smyrna was the church that was suffering and faced even more persecution. Pergamon was the church that tolerated false teaching because they wanted to be tolerant. Thyatira was the church that tolerated sin and compromised morally. And Sardis was a dead church that had a great name. It died because of complacency in last week and was Philadelphia, the faithful church, the church that had little power according to the world, but still shined brightly there in that area. And God's promised that He would deliver them. Today, we'll be looking at the church in Laodicea. And to be honest with you, I think each church has hit hard it, in my heart. I truly believe that as we look at the book, or rather the letter to Laodicea, that we'll see it hits even harder. Laodicea was an extremely wealthy area. It was a banking center for a, a large area there in Asia. It was famous, well known for its textile industry, where they made black wool. And there's also a medical center where they produced eye salve. And because of this immense wealth, the church there had become self-sufficient and complacent. They assumed that because they were wealthy, that they were spiritually and they were right with God. The problem was not wealth, but a smug satisfaction That was within the hearts of the people. The city itself, back in 60 AD, had had a huge earthquake and they refused the help of the Roman Empire. You can imagine today having an earthquake in the United States and refusing the federal disaster relief. But that was the way Laodicea was. They were proud. The city had no perceived need from Rome. And the church had no perceived need of God. Each church has faced different challenges, as I've thought this week, as I've studied and as I've prayed. But what is the greatest challenge facing the church today? I think back to 1991. Some of you can't remember back that far. But that was when the the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic fell apart. And after everything, with all the major political changes, Eastern Europe was found to have a vibrant, growing church that grew in the midst of persecution and suffering and atheism. And by contrast, Western Europe, the church back then, as well as today, is almost dead. Has little impact. Atheism and, and humanism have taken over, and the governments run on philosophies that go counter to God's word. I think of Yorkshire, England 0.9%, not even 1%, 0.9% of that area goes to church at least once a month. 0.4% of those are evangelicals. That's comparable to Japan, I think. In France, 1% of the population is evangelical. Muslims make up 10%. 80% of the French people have never owned or even seen a Bible. There are fifty thousand full time workers in the occult practice, far outnumbering the thirty-five thousand who are involved in full time Christian ministry. And of course, the United States, the wealthiest nation in the world. Our coins have in God we trust. Yet we know that even though we have so much wealth, more churches than probably any other nation. More Bibles, more Christian books, more Christian schools. Our impact, our influence on the nation is diminishing. So what's the problem? Is it freedom? No. Is it prosperity? No. But I think there are inherent dangers in both freedom and prosperity. Subtle changes, subtle things that take place. With freedom and prosperity comes the temptation to trust in our blessings instead of the God who blesses us. We think that we have a plenty. We don't need anything or anyone else. The problem is that we put our faith in the wrong thing, in material blessings. Christ says, for us to lay up treasures in heaven. Paul instructs those in First Timothy, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the certainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies all our needs. Going back to the Old Testament, God warned Israel nine times to not forget what the Lord had done for them. Fifteen times, He tells them to remember the Lord and their deliverance out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 says, When the Lord brings you into the promised land, with great cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, be careful, not to forget the Lord. I think, as you look from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, God knows our hearts. He knows our tendency to rely on wealth rather than looking to him. Christ warned the church there in Laodicea against the deadening effects of, of wealth. Instead, encourages them toward a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And this letter to the lay of the sins instructs us to not trust in our wealth and our abilities. And I know many of you are going to say, but I'm not wealthy. But the truth is, we as residents of the United States of America are very wealthy compared to 90-something percent of the world. This letter hits hard at our consumerism, our self sufficiency, our do your own thing kind of individualism, our independence. Instead of being the church of the open door that we often hear about, Laodicea was the church of the closed door, and it had left the Lord standing outside. Whereas well, with all the previous churches, Christ begins his letter to Laodicea by identifying who he is. And remember, each time he gives titles to each church, his titles are the answer to their problems. He begins by saying, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Christ identifies himself with three titles, and the first one is Jesus says He is the Amen. And Amen means firm, stable, sure, trustworthy. It gives one the idea of finality and the last word. You see, whatever Jesus says is true. Every warning that He gives will come to be. He is the last word. He is our final authority, even though the world says otherwise. And because he's all these things, because he is the Amen, we can trust him. We can trust him. Secondly, Christ says that he is the faithful and true witness. This symbolizes Christ's life. His life, from his teaching, his miracles, even his death, pointed toward the truth. He was an example in his life of how we should live. Throughout these last six weeks, Christ confronts the churches about witnessing. And in Christ Jesus, we see that witness. The third title that Christ uses here is The Beginning of the Creation of God. The title, of course, looks back to to Christ's Uh, eternal um, past. He is the beginning in the sense that he is the source, he is the origin of all things. I'm reminded of, of the passage in Colossians 1 where it says that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth for the visible or invisible for the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him, for him. So we see Christ identifying himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Unlike most of the churches, Christ does not commend the church at Laodicea. He doesn't give them any praise. We see in verses 15 through 17, Christ's condemnation or his criticism of the church. He begins by saying, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think the image here of neither cold or hot has traditionally I've been understood to be hot or cold spiritually. I think there's a problem there with that because Christ says he would rather they be lukewarm, or rather be cold rather than lukewarm. He'd rather be antagonistic if they're cold as opposed to being lukewarm. I think probably a better understanding of this passage is to see both cold and hot as good things. Is positive. Cold water refreshes. Hot water brings healing. Six miles north of Laodicea was a town famous for its hot springs, which brought healing. And Colossae was just ten miles away, to the east, and it was known for cold, refreshing water. Most of you know that I love a good cup of coffee. During the winter, my wife, Chris, and I will sit down usually in the evenings and we'll drink a cup of coffee. I might drink two cups. Chris, on the other hand, sips on her coffee. And if you're sitting around the house with us, you might hear Chris say to Zach or to Jared or to myself, two or three times, Will you heat my coffee up? You see, Chris doesn't like lukewarm coffee, she likes her coffee hot. Now, me, as the weather begins to change like it did yesterday and today, I begin to give up the hot coffee, and I like it cold, iced. But one thing I don't like either is lukewarm coffee. I can't stand it. Sometimes I want to spew it out of my mouth. And that's the way Christ was with his church. See, the church provided neither refreshment nor healing. It could only cause nausea. The word spit could maybe have been, maybe that's a little bit weak, it could be puke or vomit. The church was half-hearted in their relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that they outright rejected Christ, but they didn't have a passion for him. They were half-hearted way in between. Christ had a moderate influence on their lives, but they didn't get excited about him. They just kept him outside of the door. As we think about this idea of refreshment and healing, I have to ask myself, and maybe you can ask yourself, do I provide spiritual refreshment to believers and to unbelievers? Do I offer encouragement and joy and hope in the midst of life? And here's one we don't often think about. Do I bring healing by challenging the careless? By correcting those who are erring? Or by rousing the indifferent? One more time. Do I encourage by challenging the careless? Because we're going to all get careless. Do I correct those who are in error? And do I arouse those who are indifferent? Well, what, brought about, what brought about this lukewarmness that the church had? They had the audacity to say, "I am rich." And I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. Verse 17. You see, they were deceived. They were self deluded. They were trusting in themselves and their wealth. Again, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I am prosperous. I have need of nothing. Literally, I have need of no one. They were so wealthy, they thought they needed help from no man. Or from God. They bought into Satan's delusion that money can buy anything. They didn't need to trust Christ. Yesterday, Zach and I took a walk for about an hour and 45 minutes. And we walked down Milwaukee and we walked down Division where you had all these restaurants and bars. This was in the afternoon, 3.30 to 530 there were people everywhere. They were all out so glad. It was warm. And as I passed by these people, I couldn't help but think, where are they, where are they spiritually? They enjoying themselves. They're eating. They're drinking. See, our culture is so caught up in to those things, and sometimes we forget. There's nothing wrong with, with that. It's just the fact that you see all these crowds of people and you wonder, you wonder, if they ever put their faith and trust in Christ? Well, these people in Laodicea, because they had money, they could simply go out and buy what they needed. There's no need to wait on God. There's no need to put God first in their lives. They sought their security and their wealth. Their talents, their skills, and they thought that they were protected from all dangers. They were insulated from any kind of problem, immune to every kind of tragedy. But the Lord's evaluation of the church in verse 17 says otherwise. Christ says, You say I'm rich and have everything I want. I don't need anything. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's the New Living Translation. Miserable wrecks, wretches rather, miserable wretches who are blind and poor and naked. Despite all its wealth, the church was poor. Despite its medical school With his famous eye salve, it was blind. In the face of a prosperous textile industry that was so well known, it was naked. Spiritually naked. I can't help but think of Nathan Strand who just came back from the Philippines and every time he goes over, he comes back and he talks about the people. And I was reminded how he says that because they don't have access to medical care, they so much want them to pray for them. They look to God through prayer because they have no other means. It's so easy for us if we're sick just to go to the doctor unless there's major things that come up to where we know that doctors can't handle sometimes. It's only then sometimes we will begin to go to God in prayer. In verses 18 and 19, we see Christ's solution to their spiritual condition. He says to the church there at Laodicea, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see he encourages them to buy three things first he counsels them uh, those who are immensely wealthy he says buy from me gold refined by fire and of course this refined gold is an expression of the purifying effect of trials and suffering on God's people. This gold, in contrast to the perishable gold that they were depending on, I couldn't help but think, as I studied and read about the church at Laodicea, or the church in Smyrna, and Christ, You remember, said to the church there, he said, you are poor in earthly treasures if you're rich spiritually. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 talks about how trials show our true faith that's being tested as a fire purifies gold. So we see that context. Well, secondly, they're told to buy from Christ white garments so they may cover their shame before the Lord. Nakedness was a reference to judgment. They were naked before the Lord. The city was famous for its black wool. But Christ said they were naked. Is it possible to, it is possible, rather, for us today to wear our many suits, or Dior dresses, and still be naked in the eyes of the Lord? You see, white symbolized. Righteousness washed in the lamb. As I thought about these people who were so wealthy with these textile mills, couldn't help but think of Hans Christian Andersen's book, the about the emperor who thought he was wearing beautiful clothes who was naked in a sense. Christ is saying to us, to this church, if you're depending on your wealth, if you're depending on all these things, you're naked. You're naked. And the third solution that Christ says that they have to buy from Him is an eye salve. And again, this just kind of is in your face, like, because there in Laodicea, this famous medical complex for that time, And there, an eye salve was developed that helped to bring sight. And yet Christ says to these people to buy from him a salve. You see, their accomplishments were of no value. John Piper says the will of Christ is that our poverty be replaced by spiritual wealth that our nakedness and shame be covered with robes of righteousness and good deeds, and that our blindness be healed so that we can see how we really are and escape from the dream world of self-satisfaction. These things, of course, come only from Christ. When verse 19, after rebuking the Laodicean church for its self-satisfaction, the Lord reminds them that he disciplines those whom he loves. His intention is to call believers as a whole and individually to repentance and to renewed faith. Verse 19 reads, For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, and therefore be zealous. And repent. Of course, reprove is the idea of rebuking. It, it, it speaks of correction. And discipline, of course, is that guided training that points toward holiness and right behavior. And those of us who are parents and have had children, we, we discipline our children in various ways, and we do it not because we dislike them, we love them. We want our children to grow up to love the Lord. We want our children to grow up to be good citizens. We want our children to be whom God wants them to be. Hebrews 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. I don't think there's one of us who likes discipline, but in the midst of discipline, we can know that we are his child, because he loves us. Well, the Lady of have been blind to their spiritual condition. They've listened to the world around them. They thought their material success meant God's blessing, that they were right with God. That theology is still around today. If we're not careful, we can be influenced by it. The believers there at the church in Laodicea needed to sincerely repent, choosing to have a change of mind, which would lead, of course, to confessing their sin to the Lord, a change in spiritual direction. I was thinking as I thought about the church its effectiveness around the world and looking at the U.S., why aren't we more effective? Is the problem simply with the world? Is the world too stubborn? Is it too blind to listen? Or could it be that we have a part in it? Have we, because of our materialism, excluded Christ? Have we shut the door on Him? Have we shut Him out of our lives so He can no longer flesh out His life in us, His vision and His character, His values? The church today needs to repent of the mindset of tolerance and compromise. We live in a world that is so set on moderation, it seems, and comfort. The media loves to lift up the moderate. It's a place to be. For Christians who are moderate, the central media will say, oh, they're good. They're good. Because they're not serious. You see, they aren't extremists. They aren't radicals. If one says Yes, and one says that he's a Christian and that everyone will be saved. Then that's okay. That's okay in their eyes. But then, for those who say that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Christ, then then we get a problem with the media and with the world. They call us off base extremists and we're betrayed as dividers. You see, in the United States, comfort drives our values, along with peace at any price. And it's easy for churches, and for us as individuals, to fall subtly into that mindset. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to say that Christ is the only way. We all know of churches where you can go for years and never be confronted with sin. And Christ, I think, probably vomits when he thinks about these kind of churches. They're probably repulsive to him. And though the world and the media love this mindset, Christ rejects it. My heart my desire is that we, as a church, a good news Bible church, that we would not fall to the subtle dangers of prosperity. We wouldn't give in. We wouldn't become complacent. We would not become a country club. We would not have smug complacency. The public approves of people's of our churches sometimes and sometimes this approval dictates what churches do. It becomes a standard for the churches. John Cass, who was a columnist in the Chicago Tribune, wrote an author this past week. And if you know John Cass he can be very sarcastic sometimes. Uh, he was in this article, um, but he really hit hard in but my point is even as he talked about a subject that I won't even go into but he said sadly someone must be wrong and then again sarcastically I know, I'm, I know which one I'm in I'm in the group that's wrong and he says the group often informed by the Bible and the Constitution they're wrong again he's being sarcastic but he says these texts are considered increasingly irrelevant if not downright unreasonable and bothersome these days. I think John Cass hits the nail on the head. The world says the Bible is irrelevant. It's bothersome. And those people who believe in the Bible are bothersome. And in their minds we're dividers. We're unreasonable. And, and there's no reason for us to be, in our approach of people be unreasonable, we're to love them. But I, I don't think it matters, if we're the most loving people, there are going to be those who are going to hate the message that we give. Well, after this Christ, in verses 20 through 22, he gives a challenge to the church And he calls them to listen. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. The question here is, what door is this? I think many of us probably can picture, I've seen many pictures of Christ standing at the door. He's knocking. And our tendency it's to see this as Christ knocking on our door, the door of our hearts. He's wanting to come in. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's not an evangelistic passage. It'd be more appropriate to understand that this is the door of the Laodicean church. It pictures Christ seeking entrance into the church. This church that says I'm rich and I have need of nothing because I'm prosperous could actually place Christ outside of the church. Lukewarm Laodicea was the church of the closed door. Well, Christ here calls for two things from the church. He says, Hear my voice and open the door. Hear my voice and open the door. He stands at the door waiting for genuine repentance. It's a call to every member to respond so that the promise of renewal might be for the whole church. I'm not saying we can't use this passage in an evangelistic way, but it would be secondary application. We're connected with these conditions It's a wonderful promise from Jesus Christ. He says, if you open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you and you with me. This is Christ's promise for personal fellowship, for intimacy with those who repent. You see, Christ longs to have a restored relationship with those who are his children who, for whatever reason, have walked away. And Christ then says these words, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne, as I I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. The overcomer is the one who opens the door. The overcomer is the one who allows Christ into his life and repents. Christ promises the overcomer to rule with him. And even, even though the church at Laodicea received the harshest treatment, Christ says to them, if you repent, you'll rule with me. He promises that we reign with him. Just as Christ defeated death by his resurrection and his ascension to see the right hand of the Father, believers join him on the throne and reign with him. What Jesus concludes this letter as he has with all the previous letters. He says, He who, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My prayer is that we as individuals and we as a church are listening. I think if we've learned anything from the passage today from this letter is that complacency is out, is, is no place in our hearts. We are to be diligent Showing fruit of repentance. Our assets, all the things that we do, can do nothing. They're worthless before Christ. Of course, salvation itself comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the work on the cross, and Him alone. And it's only first when we come to Christ, broken, acknowledging I can do nothing. I have no righteousness. I have no good deeds. I have nothing. I have nothing. And I plead with you. Save me. And if we trust in him, we have that salvation. But sadly, because we're sinners saved by grace, we all must repent along the way. Because we all sin. And Christ is saying here that it is returned to him that we overcome. I think as we look back at this series, we see that Christ knows the churches, and he loves them in spite of, despite their weaknesses. Some of the churches were affirmed for the faith, others were rebuked for their lack of faith, for their bad behavior, for wrong belief. As I look back over the last six weeks in the seven churches, I see at least four theological patterns that that themes that seem to run through these seven churches. First one is conflict. The church is called to be a witness in a hostile environment. If you think back, there, there's that conflict everywhere. We go even John in Revelation chapter one verse nine says, "I John." Companion in suffering. And in two nine, he's Christ is speaking here, and he says, "I know about your suffering." And throughout the book we saw the persecution, we saw the suffering, we saw the hurt, and the environment there, and, and to some extent, here throughout the world, there is persecution. There was the Jewish synagogue, you remember, often called the synagogue of Satan. There's conflict there. There was this seduction of the pagan beliefs, if you remember the various churches that had false teachers. And of course, the conflict within the congregations where the churches had false teachers and there was that push back and forth. As I think of the church here, couldn't use Bible church, Satan is still alive. He still uses other churches. He still uses false teaching. There's conflict. We live in a hostile world, but Christ calls us to be witnesses. Of course, these conflicts reflect a deeper conflict between God and Satan. Satan is working through the synagogues. He's working through the Roman government there. He's working through the false teachers. The second theme we see is steadfastness. Over and over, Christ calls the church to stand firm, to be steadfast, especially in conflict and tribulation. The term here is an active stance. I think sometimes we get so worn down and sometimes we're tempted to just passively kind of just back off. And yet Christ is saying to the churches, he's saying to us, stand firm, be active, take a stand. Third theme we see over the last six weeks, seven weeks, is judgment. Judgment and the resulting need for repentance. All the churches, with the exception of Smyrna and Philadelphia, were called to uh, think again about where they were. Some were commended for the way that they had behaved in Christ's situations. Others were rebuked. But I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's always that constant need for repentance in our lives. And we see that... Throughout these churches in Ephesus, Christ said to them, If you do not repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand. And Pergamon says, Repent, or I'll soon come to you and fight against them. And Tyra, Repent, or I'll make those who commit adultery suffer intensely. And to Sardis, if you do not wake up and repent, I will come like a thief. So Christ called the churches then to repent. He's calling us, as a church, to repent if the things in our lives or the church. And the fourth thing that we've seen over the last several weeks as we've gone through the seven churches is the theme of Love the counterpart to judgment. The church at Ephesus was reminded that they had lost their first love. Their first love for Christ and for for the people. And Thyatira was praised for its growing fruit of love. In both cases, the love is expressed in action through works and through ministry. And that's a standing demand for Christian living. Last week, we asked members of the church to sign their annual membership card. And many of you did. But I thought this would be a great reminder of why we do this. We asked you first to acknowledge that you agree with Good News Bible Church's statement of faith. Do you agree with our theology? Do you agree with our doctrine? You see, as we look at these seven churches, we saw churches that were solid. False teachers came in, or false teachers were outside. And we know that people changed their minds. And so, with this card, we're saying, Do you agree with us? Secondly, we ask, Who are you praying for? Who are you reaching out to evangelistically? See, so we believe that God calls us to share the gospel, and we've seen throughout this series of the churches that Christ continually hit on the issue of witnessing, and He Himself is a true and faithful witness. So we ask you on the card: Who are you? Who are you reaching out to? And then, third, we ask. To list your ministry. To list your ministry. We're to love the Lord with all our hearts and souls and minds and to express it through action, through works. Again, not for salvation, but the fruit of our salvation. So if you haven't filled out your card, I encourage you to. I encourage you to. We want, as a church, To continue to be growing spiritually. We want our light to shine brightly. We want to hold forth the Word of God. We want to be a church that witnesses. We want to be a church that's involved in ministering. Let's pray.